This is Our American Story, and some of our favorite stories are of Americans driven to undertake utterly unreasonable quests. Folks who push themselves because they couldn't bear to have it any other way. And today, we're talking with Dean Carnassus, otherwise known as Ultra Marathon Man, one of Time's top 100 most influential people in the world, and a New York Times bestselling author. Dean's claim to fame is doing things like covering 350 miles in 80 hours and 44 minutes of sleepless running, or traveling 50 states in 50 days and running a marathon each of those days. And you know those 200-mile relay races that teams of 12 take on? Well, this guy runs those solo. Dean has also written multiple books, including Ultra Marathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner, and his latest, The Road to Sparta, reliving the ancient battle and epic run that inspired the world's greatest foot race. And Dean, thanks so much for joining us. I'm exhausted just listening to that introduction. I think you need to take a run. <laughs> well, Dean, I have a beer, yeah. I don't have a beer and run. Yeah. <laughs> hey, before we get into your running and other accomplishments, we love to talk to almost everybody who walks through this door of our interview process. Where were you born? Tell us about your parents and what are the things in childhood that you think shaped you to become the guy you are today? I was born in Los Angeles. So California, born and raised. Uh, I'm 100% Greek, so I'm from uh, uh, Greek grandparents. Um, I remember running home from kindergarten when I was six years old. Uh, I was the oldest child, and when we had my, my youngest sister, uh, so we've got a, I've got a brother who's a little bit younger than me, and then my sister. I remember my mom was having a hard time getting me home from school. And my dad was working two jobs, so I just said, Mom, you don't have to worry about getting me home. And she said, well, how are you going to get home? And I said, well, I'm just going to run home. <laughs> and I remember really enjoying running. I remember sitting in the classroom uh, just waiting for the bell to ring. You know, what young kid, especially a boy, wants to sit still and pay attention? I mean, a young boy wants to run around and go wild. And I just remember sitting there in that classroom just, you know, counting down the moments until the bell rang and then running home. Dean, I still don't want to sit still and pay attention. So you know, I, I think that's just all of us. <laughs> We're both alike, yeah. <laughs> and so tell me this. You, you, you then start to, I guess, do what all boys do, which is increase the challenge. Just step it up a little bit more. Talk about how that happened, increasing your distances as a kid. Well, there's this idea of never stop exploring. And in running, it's very symbolic. You know, I ran, uh, I ran a marathon when I was 14 years old. So that's, you know, 26.2 miles. And I thought maybe that was the furthest that anyone could ever run. Uh, and then I heard about people running further than that. And I, I couldn't believe it. I heard about a 50-mile foot race, and I thought that's impossible. A human being can't run continuously for 50 miles. i got to try it. <laughs> so I signed up, and I ran 50 miles. And, you know, at the 50-mile race, they said, wow, congratulations, you qualified and I'm thinking, qualified for what? For the insane asylum? And they said, no, you qualified for the Western State's 100-mile endurance run. And I could not wrap my head around the idea of someone running 100 miles nonstop. I thought, you know, there's got to be campsites along the way. You know, how many days does it take? And they said, no, the starting gun goes off, and you run as though you're running, you know, a mile race around the track. You just run for 24 hours nonstop. And, I, and that just was so, it was such an expansive idea to me that a human being could accomplish something like this. And, and then when I was that human being, it was so empowering. I thought, 
what else is out there? And I learned about a 135-mile foot race across Death Valley in the middle of summer. So not only is it the most extreme running, it was you know, the most extreme temperatures on Earth. And I thought, that's crazy. A human being could never survive in these conditions. i got to try it. And I, and I finished that race. It's called the Badwater Ultramarathon. And I just kept finding these, these new and different and more extreme and intense challenges to keep pushing the envelope to see how far I could go. And that's kind of how I <laughs> stumbled into it, if you will. And I think, you know, we had done an hour with David McCullough on the Wright Brothers. And it just mm-hmm. turns out these guys weren't in it for the money. They weren't in it for the fame. They just wanted to get up there and give it a shot and, and, and fly. And it was a hobby for them. It, they were tinkering for them. And I think this cut to that American spirit, what you're doing, Dean. I mean, it, it, to some it would say, well, wow, how, how odd. And I go, no, how American? Because we Americans do this all the time. Uh, well, you know, and ha- let's face it, how much exploration is left on planet Earth? I mean, and when it comes to physical endeavors, I mean, I know we have folks like Elon Musk and, and you know, SpaceX, uh, missions to Mars and things like that. But as far as, you know, scaling the highest mountain on Earth or, you know, crossing the, the, the largest desert, it's all kind of been done. Yep. So now it's, you know, how do you do the most intense thing possible? And that's kind of been, you know, my driving spirit. And, and you're right, I, I do it because I love it. I, it's it's you know <laughs> what do you get when you finish one of these races you know you get, you might get a, a medal or a trophy i mean there's not a lot of cash purses involved in these but i just love the challenge of of you know of of, of actually bettering yourself and that's what it comes down to it's you know can you um you know can you push through perceived limitations and unlock something that's greater than that you know, you're just testing your own limits. You want to know what you can do or can't do in the end, Dean, and your challenges. It's just your own personal challenge in the end. You don't feel like you're racing against other people or clocking against other people in your endeavors, do you? Well, you know, I'm, I'm certainly competitive in certain elements, but I think I'm competing more with myself than anyone else. So I think at the end of the day, um, the only time I feel like I've failed is when I haven't given it my all. Uh, a lot of these races I do, it's it's more about survive. <laughs> you know, you might be racing someone for 50 miles in a 100 mile foot race, but the last 50 miles, you're you know you're 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 rooting for the other guy as he's rooting for you because it it is really uh, just about survival more than anything else. Well, what led you to go for the 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states? I didn't even know that was possible. I didn't know there were 50 marathons. You know, a guy told me he was part of this 50-marathon club, and I thought, wow, what is this? And he said, I've run a marathon in every state of the union. And I said, how long did it take you? He said, well, I've been working on it for ten and a half years. And I thought, wow, I'd love to do this, but I, I want to see. <laughs> I don't have ten and a half years. I don't know if I'll be alive in ten and a half years. So I thought, what an ultimate road trip is to go out and, and see the country and, and run while you're out there. See the country at you know eight miles an hour. That's the best way to see it. And when we come back, more with Dean Carnassus. The ultra marathon man, and Dean is a writer, a raconteur, and we're going to continue with our conversation after these messages. Dean Carnassus's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and we return to our conversation with ultramarathon man Dean Carnassus. And, and by the way, Dean, before we go on, you know, one of the things we're going to start to do on this show is look at different ethnic groups that come into this country. And it's a tabula rosa when you get here. I mean, when the Italians came here, they got called names. When the Greeks came here, they got called names. The Puerto Ricans came here. The Irish came here. But in the end, we all just sort of merged into a giant melting pot. And what's been remarkable as I've looked at what I call ethnic America is how different groups did when they came here. And the Greeks were fierce entrepreneurs and real risk takers. Talk about a little of that Greek DNA, because we are where we were born, not entirely, but it has an influence on us. Talk about um, being Greek and what that's meant to you. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, It's been said that, you know, that that no other no other culture struggles so much under the weight of their collective narrative than the Greeks. Uh, let's face it, you know, we're, <laughs> we're under a lot of pressure. I mean, we've got Plato, Socrates, Plutarch, you know, Herodotus, uh, Homer. Um, you know, how do you live up uh, to, to, to those sort of expectations? I think a lot of Greeks have, have just quietly um, done remarkable things. Um, they haven't been boastful. They've, been, they've maintained a, a real element of humility. Yep. And there's always been this entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, you know, uh, Greeks are very independent. Um, even the you know the early Greek city states of Sparta and Athens and Corinth, uh, they were very independent, um, almost separate nations of a sort. But they all colluded and all kind of used best practices uh, to better themselves. And I think the Greeks, you know, the Greeks have said we can't turn anywhere else. I mean, we're kind of we, we've got to help ourselves. They've been very self-reliant. Is is one quality that I've seen with Greeks. And, um, you know, we're, we're a, a definitely a minority. I, I think that uh, Greek-Americans make up um, something less than, you know, half a percent of the U.S. population. But um, per capita, there are more Greek PhDs than any other class, and it's millionaires as well. There are more Greek millionaires than any other ethnic group. And this is, again, per capita. It's a right. very small small base of people, yeah. Yeah, and I'm Lebanese, and, and we're a little behind the Greeks, but here's a group of people that come into this country. And i got to tell you, Dean, not many people. I got made fun of a lot. It didn't bother me because my parents said, I don't worry about it. You know, for every person that made fun of you, there's 10 people who will love you. And I found that true to, to, to the uh, nature of the American experiment. And the American people, they're really generous. They wanted to try out my foods, the family foods, and they were deeply curious. And that one knucklehead in the crowd, you just had to learn to ignore him and get on with the rest of your life. <laughs> And that's just how- I've got Lebanese friends. I know what you're talking about. They're they one knuckle. They're funny people. Really great people. Yeah, yeah, we always just say let's just turn something really ugly into something funny. Yeah, um, we life's short. So let's talk back to that 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states. You you started in St. Louis on September 17th, 2006 with the Lewis and Clark Marathon. You ended on November 5th, 2006 with the New York City Marathon. Uh, talk about some highlights. Some lowlights, too, Dean, because there have got to be moments, even inside you, where you're going, what was I thinking? <laughs> Plenty of those moments. Uh, but, you know, it was, a, it was great exploration. I mean, it was, uh, for, for one, you know, just for the listeners to explain how I did this, I had a, a big school bus, and my mom is a retired public school teacher, so I brought my kids along. I had two, 
my daughter and my son, they were young at the point, and my mom would road school them. So she'd basically homeschool them as we're driving around the country for 50 days. Their schools were sending them these lesson plans, emailing them to my mom every Sunday night, and she'd teach the lesson throughout the week. And we all of a sudden became like the a, a, a kind of this traveling um, roadshow where all of my kids' friends from school were so curious, you know, what were the experiences they were having. And then their parents learned about it. So now all their parents were following us. And people started learning about what I was doing, and they were coming out like we'd have 50, 60 people show up at the starting line of a race in Iowa on Tuesday morning. <laughs> That's great. And, and Yeah, no, and marathons were flying from Alaska. A guy came in from Japan to run with me. They heard about this, and it just was like this brotherhood, they can sisterhood that came together. Um, so that was the, you know, the, the really uh, poignant and, and beautiful moments. You know, some of the low moments were, I remember running a, a marathon in Alaska, and it was snowing and cold, and the next day I was in Arizona, and it was about 105 degrees running through the desert, and I remember finishing the race thinking, this is marathon 19. I can barely walk. You know, how am I going to get out of bed tomorrow morning and run a marathon, let alone, you know, 30 more after that? So there were some moments where I really doubted I could do it um, and just, you know, kept that American spirit. Just said, you know, when I'd get out of bed in the morning, I would say, don't think about running a marathon. Just get to the sink, you know, the bathroom and splash some water in your face. You know, okay, that's great. Just just put on your shorts, you know, one leg at a time. Okay, lace up your shoes. Okay, get out the door. <laughs> get to the starting line. Okay, just start running. Just put one foot in front of the other. Uh, so it became, at points, a very uh, uh, cerebral challenge as well as a physical one. Yeah, I would assume that. You know, I, I've gotten into Mike Krzyzewski's life, and he has this saying for all the young guys on the court, and it's not anything else but these two simple words, next play. Not the play before, and not three plays, five plays, in the next game, or the NCAA Finals. Just next play. And so many of the kids and, and, and athletes who played under his tutelage talk about how that helped them focus on just the next activity in front of you. Life didn't become as intimidating that way. Well, and it's more approachable. You're right. Um, it, with running, you know, it gets very granular. I just say, you know, instead of next play, it's next step. Yep. Next step. Next step. Because you tend to look at the mile markers, especially during a marathon. You know, you might be at mile, you might see a mile marker that says mile 18, which means, you know, you basically have over eight miles to go. And, you know, you might be cramping at that point. You know, you might just be completely exhausted. It's demoralizing. It's a heavy weight on your shoulders to think, how am I going to run another eight miles on top of what I've done, don't do that. I just say next step. Put the blinders on about the future. Don't reflect on the past. Just be in the present moment, in the now. Next step, next step. So I really, I can relate to that next play mentality. Yeah, and it's a great thing for life, I think, how to stay in the moment and not get overwhelmed by the exigencies of life, which can easily overwhelm any of us if we look too far down the road or too far back into the past. It, it can be paralyzing. Let's talk about this cross-country road trip, because my goodness, we've talked to one person who's biked across the country for Dave, uh, Dave Thomas's foundation. He's a Wendy's franchisee who said, my goodness, I want to raise some money for kids. And so he, he, rode, he rode across the country on a bicycle, and we followed him along. What was r jogging across the country like? And by the way, what did you learn about your country when you did this and that 50-day in 50-state uh, adventure, and what did your family learn? 
Well, you know, I, I learned we're, we're a very diverse country. I mean, you, you, you hear this said all the time, and it's almost cliche, but the regional differences, um, not just with the food and, you know, the dialect, but with philosophy and the way you approach life is so varied as you run across the country. Um, but the one, the one, you know, the, the one uniting thing is that we're all free, and we're all freedom-loving people. So the support I got along the way was remarkable. It was almost like Forrest Gump. I mean, some days I'd be running, and there'd be 40 or 50 people running with me, you know, on a remote highway <laughs> out, in the, you know, out in the desert. Uh, I remember running over the Rockies in a snowstorm, and people showing up on the side of the road with hot chocolate. So, we, you know, I, I learned that running can transcend our differences and bring people together. I mean, there's so many things in this world that, that divide us, right? Be it, you know, our political beliefs, the color of our skin, the God we worship, whatever. Uh, when I was out there running uh, and people were running with me, it's a commonality. All of us humans share, and it brought us together, regardless of, you know, the food we ate, um, you know, the accent we had. So uh, it was really beautiful, you know, seeing the, the support of people that came out. And I'm not talking about elite runners, some elite runners, but some people just coming out to run a mile or two by my side. Yep. And, I, and by the way, what's so interesting to me, I had a dear friend of mine, and this Italian guy who was one of my mentors, and he said, you know, if you can do these three things a lot, you're going to have a happy life. Play sports a lot because you're not talking. Dance a lot because you're not talking. And, and last but not least, and this was just, he said, love a lot because then you're not talking. And if you're loving, you're not talking. And, I'll go with the latter. Yeah, yeah, I think I'll go with the latter, too. But when we come back, and I think that's what's transcendental, is you're running with people. You're not going to get them in an argument. You're running together. You might chat a little bit, but there's something about just running together, just throwing a ball with your kid. You don't have to talk. Throw the ball. It's just the movement, the, the, the movement back. It's just a beautiful thing, as is dancing. When we come back, more with ultramarathon man Dean Carnassus. This is Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do here, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More after these messages. And we're talking to Dean Carnassus, the ultramarathon man, who's also written some books, Ultramarathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner, and his latest, which we'll talk about in a moment, The Road to Sparta, reliving the ancient battle and epic run that inspired the world's greatest foot race. And Dean, before we do that, just a couple of basic questions. I know the audience is thinking, how do you train for this stuff? And how do you avoid knee injuries, foot injuries? And just all around hurting. Well, you know, how do you train for this stuff? <clears throat> you do a lot of it. So, uh, for instance, a couple of days ago on Sunday, there was a, I live in San Francisco. There was a marathon in Oakland. 
I got it. I just signed up and ran the marathon, just kind of spur of the moment. So you do a lot of, of running. And I also do a lot of cross-training to avoid those issues you just talked about, to avoid knee issues and, you know, those little niggling um, joint pains. Uh, when I say cross-training, I mean what's called high-intensity interval training, so HIIT training. Uh, throughout the course of the day, I'm constantly doing sets of push-ups. I've got a pull-up bar in my office, pull-ups, sit-ups, uh, burpees, constantly moving. Uh, even now, as I'm doing this interview, I'm, I'm walking around the room. I'm standing up. Uh, I write all my books standing up. I never sit down. I bounce around on my toes as I'm writing. So my whole life is built around physical movement. I see life as training and training as life. And I think that people that just run, um, it's kind of a recipe for injury, overuse injury. So I always encourage people to mix it up. And I also encourage people to look at their entire life through the lens of an athlete. Everything I do is to be the best animal Dean can be. So that has to do with my diet, my cross-training, my actual training, my sleep patterns, and it also has to do with interpersonal relationships. Uh, let's face it, if you, you know, if, you, if you don't have a good, solid foundation with your family, uh, that puts a lot of stress on you, yep. and you don't perform at your best. So I really look at my life as, you know, how can I be the best possible athlete as, possible, you know, as I can and do everything um, with that lens. And, in, you know, so often I'll talk to athletes, and we did an hour on West Point, just the institution, because it had produced so many great leaders, military and otherwise, uh, NASA, NASA exploits from West Point, uh, unheralded, and even sports. You know, Mike Krzyzewski was a point guard at, uh, at West Point. His coach, a very young Bobby Knight. Go figure. And, uh-huh. and it's just incredible. T- t- tell me this, in mind, body, and spirit, what is there that you do on that spirit side? Is there a part of that uh, equation that you pay attention to as well, Dean? Well, I mean, I think that's, <laughs> that's my running. Um, that, you know, that's where I find my God, if you will. Yep. Um, running is a, I'm a, I'm an introvert, um, you know, just by nature. So running to me, and if you saw where I ran up in the hills um, north of San Francisco, uh, it's it's a beautiful setting. Um, I'm out by myself. I actually have a very close relationship with nature. I'm almost more comfortable running in nature than I am in groups of people. In fact, I am more comfortable. And I think that you know, unfortunately, that's that's something that's been lost um, as we've evolved as a species. Is we've lost this relationship with the outdoors, with nature. And to me, that's you know that that's part of the human experience, and it what's, it makes me feel spiritually enlivened is when I'm outside running through the hills. Um, and, you know, it, it, unfortunately, a lot of people uh, in the industrialized world just don't have uh, access to that experience. Yep. You know, they live in cities that are so built up. But I would encourage folks to try their best, you know, even on the weekends to get somewhere wild and just, you know, immerse yourself in the grandness of, of this planet of ours. Indeed. And by the way, we, Reader's Digest did a, did a long piece on the health and wellness of people who take long walks or exercise in and around nature. And it was remarkable what the findings were, Dean. It's not surprising to me. We broadcast just south of Memphis. And when you draw a circle around Memphis, around 200 you know, miles or so, you're going to find almost all the great American musicians and writers came from this area in the area of music. It's remarkable, and it's these wide-open spaces and this peace of mind and having to fill up your own space. Well, I know. I, you know it's, it's, ironically, um, I, I've written all of my books. So I've written four books now. I write all of them when I'm running because I have some of my most clearest thoughts uh, when I'm out by myself running. 
And so I carry a digital recorder with me, and I just dictate into this as I'm running, and and then I type up my notes. And you know, even Nietzsche said the only you know the the only real thoughts are those that occur while you're moving. (laughs) And I you know, so I I can completely relate to what you're saying there. Oh, so it's so true. And and talk to us about the diet thing because you had said you know eating really was a a fundamental part uh, of you and your performance. And so talk about that. Uh, that 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 regiment that you go through, and what you eat and what you don't eat, and why? Yeah, so I've I've really refined my diet over the years, and I've kind of self-selected on um, those foods that leave me with the most energy and feeling the best. Um, I eat more of those foods that you know leave me feeling lethargic and you know kind of drag me down. I've cut from my diet, and I've basically arrived at a place where I eat no processed food, nothing that that has to go through a machine or be refined. So. Um, I don't eat any grains like rice or oats or wheat. Uh, I basically eat as though I was a Neanderthal man. Um, if I can't pick it from a tree, pull it from the earth, or catch it with your hands, I really don't eat it. So it's it's just, you know they call it a paleo diet. Um, that said, I don't cook a lot of my food either, so it's kind of a raw paleo diet. And the amount of energy I have, I mean, I can I can go nonstop throughout the day uh, without ever experiencing a, a loss of energy. So I think that uh, that dietary shift has really helped in everything I do. This, you know, Jack LaLanne, you must know Jack LaLanne. Sure, yep. Yeah, he said, uh, if man makes it, don't eat it. And if it tastes good, spit it out. <laughs> not, not bad advice. And let's talk about The Road to Sparta, uh, because this, I, I assume, is your most personal book, Dean. Um, why did you write it? And talk about the book, if you can. Yeah, well, The Road to Sparta is, you're right, it's, it's a very personal journey, and it's about the original marathon and the, the Greek runner Phidipides, or Phidipides, that ran the marathon. And uh, it's, a, it's basically a history book as well. So, uh, you know, ironically, right now the book is it's number one on Amazon in the category of Greek history. And I'm not a historian, but I delve very deeply into the history of, of ancient Greece and the evolution of running and marathoning. I also learned a lot about my identity, and I think this gets back to what you talked about, um, you know, being uh, Lebanese and wanting to know more of where you came from. So I actually went back to Greece to the very village my grandfather came from and his grandfather and his grandfather before him and discovered a lot about, you know, what I'm all about and how I became who I am and where my people came from. And that to me was fascinating. I think that's something that, that you know, we look at the the popularity of things like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, you know, the genetic test that can tell you where your ancestors came from. Not only did I learn where my ancestors came from, I visited these places and saw exactly how they lived, you know, generations ago. And that was really fascinating. And I write about all this in the book. You know, there's one point in time where you say, at the start, I was surrounded by 350 warriors huddled in the pre-dawn mist at the foot of the Acropolis of Athens. For me, the quest was deeply personal. I'd been waiting a lifetime to be standing in this place. I would finally run alongside my ancient brother. Close out with us those words. Who was that ancient brother? You just mentioned him. And that feeling, running and starting to run by the Acropolis. Yes, yeah, so that ancient brother, was. his name was Phidippides, and he was part of a class of people called Hemodromi, they were professional day-long runners. They were foot heralds, foot messengers. And his mission was to, when the Persians invaded Greece at the Bay of Marathon, 
the Athenians said, we need to recruit the Spartans to help us. We need reinforcements. We're badly outnumbered. They dispatched this, this man, Pheidippides, to run 153 miles nonstop to Sparta to recruit the Spartans to battle. And it was because of his heroic undertaking and his mission that democracy is what it is today. I mean, he basically saved democracy. Greece was the first democratic state, and the Persians wanted to crush him. Had he not succeeded in running 153 miles to recruit the Spartans, our lives would be very much different. And to me, that's, it's, it was incredible to retrace those footsteps and to do it um, myself 2,500 years later. And that's what we love doing here on Our American Stories, digging into the story of the people we have on. And my goodness, that sounds like the Paul Revere story without the horse. And my goodness, what a big one. Dean Carnassus, ultramarathon man, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. American Stories, and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And we're following Lewis and Clark along their two-and-a-half-year adventure, exploring the American West. And our own Alex Cortez brings us our 28th feature on what happened on these precise days in history over 200 years ago. This is one of the greatest stories. I actually have just been reading about it again and realized, I've been at this now for 30 years or more, how critical a moment this was. You know, when they left St. Louis, they had three boats, the keelboat and two pirogues. When they left Fort Mandan... Coming off their first winter of the expedition, and by the way, you're listening to your resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkins. They had six small canoes, as Lewis put it, and the two large pirogues, the red pirogue and the white pirogue. And the white pirogue was now the command module. And in the command module, I'm using a term from the space race, but in there were the, the medicines and gifts to native peoples and all of their important papers, their traveling library, scientific instruments, the journals. This was the, the, the boat at this point that was the one that you had to keep. If you lost one, two, or four canoes, you could go on and build new canoes. But if they had lost the white pirogue, as Lewis likes to say, it would have defeated the expedition altogether. It's over. They could maybe move on, but they couldn't move on with any pretensions to being a scientific expedition, and they, and they wouldn't have any medicines, and they wouldn't have any way to keep journals and so on. And so Lewis and Clark made it a habit that one of them was always in the white pirogue. There had to be somebody there at all times because this was the essential vessel. And for some reason or other, on May 14th, 1805, in far eastern Montana, Charbonneau was at the helm for some reason, and Lewis, in his kind of sarcastic but also uh, amused way, calls him, quote, the most timid waterman in the world, which makes you wonder why he was at the helm and the river was running high with swells. There's high wind in that part of Montana, and it was, a, it was kind of a stormy day. And the, they had a sail up, but a very primitive sail. 
and the wind hit it from the wrong angle and, and it, it started to blow the boat over. And a good uh, navigator can just trim the sail or move it in the right direction and, and at least prevent further damage. But Charbonneau didn't really understand the art of wind and sails, and so he made things worse by the way he handled the situation. And then he just gave up and, and, and threw up his arms, and, and Lewis said was praying to his God. Charbonneau still crying to his God for mercy. While the boat is filling with water, it's not sinking, but it's filling with water and things are starting to float out. In this situation, Captain Clark and myself both fired our guns to attract the attention, if possible, of the crew and ordered the sail hauled in. But they did not hear us. Finally, Pierre Cruzat, the great waterman, the principal waterman of the expedition, uh, actually threatened to kill Charbonneau. Threatened to shoot him instantly if he did not take hold of the rudder and do his duty. And so Charbonneau reluctantly then gets a hold of the sails and tries to make things a little bit better. The waves by this time were running very high. But this is Sacagawea's moment. Who we know as Sacagawea and have been lied to about our whole lives as Clay's about to show us. Now keep in mind, uh, she's been with them since around November 4th, 1804. Now it's May 14th. Because of what she did that day, she got her name written up for the first time. Her name had never been written in any of the documents of the expedition until this moment. It's actually a week later when Lewis does it. But he mentions her and names a creek for her. And the reason for that is that she's done something remarkable. This is sort of my thesis, getting noticed on the Lewis and Clark Trail. You don't get noticed unless something goes wrong or something goes really well or you do something heroic or you screw up or you get sick or you die or you shoot something you shouldn't. And so on any given day, they don't write up everything they have to say. They write up that which they have time to write up and something that's really remarkable. And so on the 21st of May, Lewis, who is largely indifferent to native peoples, except in a professional sense, names a creek after her and calls it Sakagarwea, or Bird Woman's Creek, because he's noticing her. He's, she's, she's come out of the mass and she's suddenly interesting and she's done something extremely important. As these items, we're floating out. These are boxes and sealed canvas and so on. As these items are floating out of the white pirogue, Lewis says she had the, the good sense to start to pluck some and put them back in the boat while others were bailing. In this pirogue, were embarked our papers, instruments, books, medicine. In short, almost every article indispensably necessary to further the views or ensure the success of the enterprise in which we are now launched to the distance of 2,200 miles. And he said, we, we owe a great deal to her remarkable stoicism and her, her ability to function when her husband was having a panic attack. The same guy that Lewis called the worst waterman in the world. If the boat had gone down, they probably would have had to turn back. we wouldn't be having this conversation. This would be an abortive expedition that got to Fort Mandan and then had a, had a terrible accident. And after that, they packed it in and went back to St. Louis and maybe regrouped and went out the following year. So it's that important. The currents happily passed 
without ruinous injury. And in his usual sort of heroic way, he said, I was on the shore and I, I watched this, you know, sort of watching it in slow motion. He said we were 300 yards away, which is an enormous distance, 300 football fields, three football fields. He said, I took, I started to take off my coat, starting to strip down just to the barest essentials. I, for a moment, forgot my own situation and involuntarily dropped my gun, threw aside my shot pouch, and was in the act of unbuttoning my coat. He said I was going to swim out to try to do what I could. Throw myself into the river and endeavor to swim to the Piro. And he said, but then I realized that if I had done that, I couldn't possibly have helped. I recollected the folly of the attempt I was about to make. I probably would have drowned. The Piro was 300 yards distant. The waves so high that a Piro could scarcely live in any situation. The water excessively cold and the stream rapid. There's no way I could swim 300 yards over choppy waters in the Missouri River to get to this stricken vessel in time and probably would have paid for my life with it. A hundred to one. What I should have paid the forfeit of my life for the madness of my project. But his sense is my life is sort of measured by the success or failure of this expedition. But had the Piro been lost, I should have valued but little. And so after that, a couple of things happened that are really important. I mean, number one, Sakagawea gets mentioned. Number two, the captains decide they will never, ever, ever again um, make it possible for them both to be on the shore at the same time. One of them will always now be with the white pirogue because it has to be that level of care. And number three, after this, Clark, who has been copying some parts of Lewis's journals, now begins to copy them verbatim every day. That they, for whatever reason, they decide we need a backup copy of anything that gets written. And so Lewis will write up a passage of 300 words or 3,000 words, and before Clark would sort of do some of it and leave some out or, or paraphrase parts of it. But after May 14th, 1805, Clark copies verbatim every journal entry of Lewis. And so some people believe, Donald Jackson, the great uh, Lewis and Clark historian, believed that maybe some journals were lost that day, that they lost critical documents, that they were unable to recover. They didn't mention this because it was so shameful to have to, to, have to admit that these important documents that Jefferson wanted more than anything else had been lost. But they do then create this backup plan thereafter, and Clark begins to essentially, I know this sounds a, a little bit sarcastic, but he essentially becomes a human Xerox machine for Lewis and says, you know, there are always going to be two journals. So you can, you can probably assume from that that after this, one journal was in the white period, the command module, and the copy, somebody else's journal, was in the red period because they were never going to let so much of their essential gear be in one boat only. And by the way, the, Joe Musselman, he was the great ethnomusicologist, unfortunately now dead, he says that Charbonneau did what you'd expect of a voyageur. A boatman employed in the fur trade. That a French-Canadian voyageur, in, when these kind of terrible things happen, prays 
that that's the right thing for the person to do is to pray to God in the Voyager tradition. And so that even though Lewis sneered at this as if, you know, I don't think God's going to help you here. This is really about steering the boat. But for Charbonneau, according to Joe Musselman, he was behaving in a well-trodden navigational tradition of Roman Catholic voyageurs in the French-Canadian tradition. So that at least makes Charbonneau seem a little less pathetic than he normally seems in Lewis's descriptions of him. And what a story. And thanks, as always, to our Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at claydjenkinson.com. He's the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical, We Proceeded On. And great job, as always, on this Alex as well, who's in command of all of these. This is Our American Stories, the most epic road trip ever, the Lewis and Clark story. Our American Stories, and you're listening to the Staple Singers, and it's hard to interrupt this song. And this single, well, one of the most famous of the Staple Singers, and if you ever get a chance, just go on YouTube and watch Mavis do her thing with Pop Staples. It's a beautiful thing. And we thought we'd play this song by the Staple Singers, not as the story of a song, which we love to do here on this show, but because the story we're going to hear is about a stapler. And not just any ordinary stapler. Here's Jesse. A candy apple red swing line stapler plays a prominent role in Office Space, a 1999 dark comedy by Mike Judge about a fictitious Texas software company and the everyday people who work there. I believe you have my stapler. One of those office dwellers is Milton Wadams, played by one of today's most prolific character actors, Stephen Root. He's an invisible nuisance that must be tolerated because he's a human on the planet, but he takes up space and and he's, he's not a bad human being to them. I don't consider Milton over the top at all. I think it's one of my subtlest roles actually. Even though it's a, a big character, it's it's done really small. Milton is an overweight, aging nerd with prescription glasses so thick that you can't see his eyes. I don't care if they lay me off either because I told, I told Bill that if they move my desk one more time then then I'm quitting. I'm going to quit. And, and I told Dom, too, because they've moved my desk four times already this year, and I used to be over by the window, and I could see the squirrels, and they were married, but then they switched. He devotes his work days to guarding his red swing line against his boss, who is constantly moving his desk and stealing his stapler. Hi, Milton. 
but what's I, happening? I, did, Mel, did, we're going to need to go ahead and move you downstairs into storage B. No, we I, I uh, have some not, new people coming it, in, and no, we need all the space we can get. But there's no space. So if you could in, just go ahead and it, pack up it, your stuff. And move it down there. But, no, that would be terrific. I, I, I was okay. I could stay. It, excuse me. Yeah, I, I believe you have my stapler. But Milton Wadams eventually gets his revenge against the smug boss who takes his stapler away. I set the building on fire. By setting the building on fire. Now, Office Space barely earned back the $10 million it cost News Corp's 20th Century Fox to make the film. But in 2000, when it came out on video, it was clear that the movie was reaching a particular audience. Cubicle-dwelling computer programmers. For months, Stringline fielded demands for that red stapler pouring in by phone and email. Corporate accounts payable, Nina speaking. Just a moment. There was just a slight little problem. Swingline didn't make bright red staplers. The one in the movie was custom-painted by a prop designer. When real-life Milton Wadhamses found out they couldn't buy one from the manufacturer, they simply made their own, creating a thriving black market on eBay for swing lines that were simply spray-painted red. Then, finally, three years after the red stapler buzz began, Swingline began selling a real red stapler, its basic 747 model, now with a new paint job. Office Space has turned out to be one of the more effective, if unusual, recent examples of product placement in films. Now, the movie didn't just spark sales for Swingline. It invented the whole idea of a bright red stapler to begin with. Now, the sleepy Midwestern company that made the first top-loading stapler more than 60 years ago has discovered a new approach to marketing office products to younger generations. Best of all, the Office Space movie plug didn't cost Swingline a single dime. Through the magic of product placement, it's now common for advertisers to have their brands mentioned or used in feature films. Terms of these deals are among Hollywood's most closely guarded secrets. These days, they typically involve advertising or cross-promotion swaps worth millions of dollars. In Swingline's case, though, it was sheer luck, not money, that brought it into office space. I believe you have my stapler. Swingline executives didn't even recognize the marketing opportunity when the movie's producers approached them back in 1999. The company figured its mainstay customers were unlikely to trade up and declined the pitch. Still, the writer and director of Office Space, Mike Judge, best known as the creator of Beavis and Butthead, was determined to keep the red stapler in his film. Swingline did not stand in his way. The new product is a big deal in the stapler community, says Clark Allen, a 29-year-old Dallas web consultant and host of virtualstapler.com, where people exchange stories about staplers and stapler injuries. The red staplers have quickly become the most popular item on the Swingline website, which is the only place you can buy them, $29 a piece. And that is the story of a stapler, perhaps the most famous stapler there ever was. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. But then they switched from the swing line to the Boston stapler, but I kept my swing line stapler because it didn't bind up as much and, and I kept the staples for the swing line stapler. Okay, Milton. And, oh, no, it's not okay because if they make me, if they, if they take my, my stapler, then I'll, I'll, I'll have to, I'll fit the building on fire. And great job as always, Jesse, and we got to order a couple of those swing line staplers. The red ones, get on it. And stapler, virtualstapler.com. Stapler injuries? 
Stapler Stories. Jesse, I think that's a segment. I think that's a segment. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We sublime stuff, silly stuff. We do it all here on the show. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. And please sign up for the podcast. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org and tell friends about what we're doing. If you're sick of the yelling and the screaming, the politics, the downers, and just, well, sick of it all, tune into our show for a little uplift, for a little laugh. You'll learn, you'll laugh, you'll think, you'll cry. That's our goal here. Make you feel something. Sometimes you'll learn something. And again, sometimes you'll just get a chuckle out of what we do, we hope. OurAmericanNetwork.org to learn more. And this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored, as always, by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone that you likely don't know named Jim O'Connor, but you will be glad to have met him. They came over on my father's side in the 1840s at the height of the potato famine. The one thing they valued when they got here was education. That was the stepping stone to just about everything in our family. My folks went to the University of Chicago at a time that that wasn't that common for Irish to go to the University of Chicago. And speaking of education, their son Jim's wasn't always of the academic variety. When I was in high school, I worked as an usher at the stadiums, Chicago Stadium and Sox Park and Wrigley Field. And it was a tough period. If you were, as I was an usher at the games, particularly the Blackhawk games, where the fans were really tough, you know, they'd start coming very early and they'd have a lot of beer to drink before the game got underway. My early job in that role was to be responsible for security, whatever they meant at that time, in the second balcony where there were no police at all. And you took your life in your hands when you went up there and tried to tell people, you know, knock it off. Or, and particularly if you're 15 years old, and even though I was kind of big at the time, that was not somebody that they wanted to hear. I can remember uh, most of the games going with an extra shirt that I would carry because I was beat up any number of times. And I did that so when I went home, I was able to confuse my mother, and she wasn't aware of what happened. She would have been really unhappy. Now, I don't want to overplay this, but this probably happened a half a dozen times in that three-year period. I got the, either the shirt was totally ripped up or I was beat up in the process. And I, you know, I loved the job. The job was fantastic at that age to have that experience and to see a hockey game at the same time made it made, made a few bucks. Thankfully, Jim found someone who liked him a little bit more. 
but not at first. I was a junior at Holy Cross, and I went to a picnic. And one of the people who was there was a friend of mine, and he was dating a gal who I met. And I was really impressed by her. And then three years later, I called her and said that, you know, I've been meaning to, to call you to see if we could go out on a date. She said, are you kidding me? You waited this long? She says, I, I, I don't remember meeting you. And I said, well, I must have made a hell of an impression on you at that time. And she said, well, let me look in your yearbook, because several of my friends know the yearbook. I want to see if I really want to go out with you or not. I mean, it was kind of cool in a way that <laughs> she did that. That was the beginning. Of a wonderful world with Ellen. And on only their second date, they saw this guy. We both like good music, and I loved Louis Armstrong. I'm going back to the days of high society. So I invited her to go to Storyville in Boston to hear Louis Armstrong. It was a Friday night, and it was unbelievable. He was everything I ever hoped he would be. So we had this great evening, and as it was over, I said to Ellen, I want to go back and knock on the door if he's there and just say thanks, because he's so good. And we walked to the back, and he had a door with a little star on the front of it, meaning that it was the guy who was the key player. Before we get any further in Jim's story, today you couldn't get any further than the front of the stage to the performer. You couldn't just freely walk backstage, let alone approach Louis Armstrong's door. And I knocked on the door and he, he said, come on in. And I came and I just, I said, I just want to say hi and tell you how much I like you and you know, how much you meant in my life from the standpoint of music. And he said, sit down, sit down. And I said, so well, we don't need to sit down. He said, no, no, just sit down. He said, you're from Chicago. And he started to tell Chicago stories and New Orleans stories. And, and he was unbelievable. He was probably the most major celebrity that I'd ever met in my life. And he insisted on just, just chatting about his experiences in Chicago and music in Chicago. And he just wouldn't let us go. What a wonderful that was one of the highlights of my life at that time, to have this guy who was so big and be that kind. It was a real lesson. I couldn't believe that there was nobody else there. That's what shocked me, that they weren't lining up to do the same thing that I was doing, being able to say hi to him. And about a year later, Jim asked Ellen to say hi to him every day for the rest of their lives. I asked her to marry me. I would have been 22, and she was just a year younger. You know, you did that in those days. I had the advantage of marrying somebody who was a lot smarter than I was. <laughs> that, that helped us along the, the way. She reads like crazy. She's a better person than I am. I accept that. I married up, as they say, which I've been very lucky. And it's phenomenal for, for the kids because they look up to her so much. And being able to look up to someone is one of the most important things in life. My whole life has been because of what others have made of it. You like to think you can take the credit for what's happened in your life. The fact of the matter is 
every place I've ever been is because somebody has given me a lift. A friend of mine had recommended to people at Commonwealth Edison that they might interview me when I was at Harvard Business School. Commonwealth Edison is the largest provider of electricity in Illinois. I wasn't sure that was really what I wanted to do, work with a utility, but the people that I met, the thing that really came across is that if I had joined the company, they'd keep an eye out on me. And to me, that was invaluable, that somebody was paying attention. And early on, that the man who, who made the most difference in my life, there were two, Morgan Murphy, who was the chairman of the executive committee for the company and just a great, great mentor for me. And then the chairman of the board who interviewed me at Harvard also indicated, we're gonna keep an eye on you and if, if you do your work, we're not gonna let you fail for lack of telling you what you need to do. So that we can promise you. And he, he did and that's what I wound up doing was to try to satisfy him and others who kept an eye out for me. Why did these big time business leaders care about some Irish kid named Jim O'Connor? Yeah, he went to Harvard Business School, but there's a couple hundred of them in every class and a whole world of qualified people out there. I think the fact that I uh, was going into the Air Force for three years, which also gave me an opportunity really work at my age with a lot of people, had supervisory responsibility for a lot of people. And that was a huge thing in, in my favor. And I think this is the great value of spending some time in the service. Today that's not as common, but that was a great time in our lives. I was just, just married and was being paid $222 a month. And I thought we had all the money in the world. As they say, it's all relative. After only 15 years at Commonwealth Edison, Jim became its president and CEO, leading the largest nuclear power producer in the country with its thousands of employees for 20 years. I've said this to my kids repeatedly, uh, that that's the key thing to have somebody who's, who you hope will look out for you. So I was very lucky. I was made president at what age of 40 or something. That was huge. I, I got very lucky because of some people who took an interest. And his mom, being his mom, took the greatest interest in where her son lived. She highly encouraged, as is the gentle way to describe a mother's approach for her son to live in the North Shore community called Evanston. My mother, who knew a lot about the parish, and she thought that would be a great place to go. It was so typically Irish to say, this is where I think you ought to go. <laughs> but boy, that was such a good decision. And so was Jim's decision to retire, but not really retire. I'd go nuts if I wasn't doing what I've been doing. And I, not only would I go nuts, Ellen would go nuts too. That would not be a good equation. Thankfully, Chicago's Cardinal stepped in to give Jim some work and help him keep his marriage. And when we come back, we'll hear what that work was. Jim O'Connor's story here on Our American Stories. 
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Jim O'Connor's story of retiring, but not really retiring, thanks to one Chicago Cardinal. I was born on the South Side, 79th and Ashland, which was just a great community with a tremendous following in the church level and the school level, which made an enormous impact on me. We spent 18 years in that parish, and then not that many years later, after I moved downtown, it just just closed without any notice or any hearing or anything else. It was just gone. This had to be in the early 1980s. The Catholic population in the Chicago area has declined from 43% of the population to 35%. For every 10 Catholics, there are now four ex-Catholics, making it difficult to keep open many neighborhood parishes and especially their schools. But this was a time where it registered on me the importance of trying to keep these schools going were they successful schools. But we didn't have the apparatus to be supportive of them. Back then, the archdiocese, for whatever reason, they'd make the decision. And it was so important, I thought, so to so many people to keep them going if we could. And that's when Cardinal Bernadine really encouraged us to do this. To create a brand new group which would be solely focused on raising the resources to provide to exceptional but struggling inner-city Catholic schools in the form of operational support and directly to their underprivileged students in the form of scholarships, both of which would help keep the schools open. Today is amazing how much of the support that we enjoy comes from people who are not Catholic, but they recognize what these schools mean to this community. One of those people is a gentleman named John Canning, who pays for 100 student scholarships every year and is an atheist. Colonel George used to call him the heathen. He said, here's this heathen who's giving all this money to, to the Catholic Church. And John gets a big kick out of that. He thinks that's funny. Then there's Lester Crown, whose family came to Chicago from Lithuania to escape pogroms, where they killed them because they're Jewish. When I first talked to Lester, I asked him if he'd meet me in joining the Cardinal. We had that breakfast, and we rode back in the car, and he said, I I really want to help. He said, what you're doing is is really God's work. And he made a significant commitment on the spot. And in the process, he said, you have to tell me if you think this is adequate. Who says that? I'm thinking about making this donation, and let me know if it's not adequate, if it's not enough. That's effectively what he said. He said, I want it to be meaningful. I remember when Phil Corboy was being recruited to make a major gift. I remember he said to Cardinal Bernadine, how does anybody say no to a cardinal? And Cardinal Bernadine said, I knew that you would say that, and you don't say no to a cardinal. He got a big kick out of that answer because it was so candid and so plaintive in the way. In virtually every other major community in the United States, The poor Catholic schools have taken a hit. It's very hard for them to survive in this environment. 
because they can't pay for themselves and they don't have the support systems that we've tried to develop in Chicago. We've got 5,000 kids on virtually full scholarships in our schools right now. And this is of the 20,000 that are in these schools. We've had any number of instances over the years where the archdiocese has suggested that they would close a school or they might close a number of schools. They had a group of about a dozen schools that were gonna be closed. And we put together a slate of things that we needed to do to keep them open. And we went to the archdiocese and said, this is too important to, to ignore the value that these schools bring. So we'd like your commitment, if we're gonna give the kind of money that it will take to keep them going, and this is in 10, 12 million dollars for those handful of schools, will you permit them to have a life and let us be the stewards of these schools going forward? And the archdiocese agreed. That number today is going to be probably 25 to 30 schools that we're going to be stewards of, that we will support and almost notwithstanding what the archdiocese is wanting to do. And that's where we think we can make a difference. You know, this isn't meaning we're gonna be the ones who are running these schools, but without our help, we don't think these schools could make it. And without these Catholic schools and the 76 in total that Big Shoulders supports, the alternative for underprivileged kids in Chicago is grim. They would have to attend the Chicago public school in their neighborhood that they're assigned to, a government school system where only 74.7% of the students will even graduate. In big shoulder schools, it's 95%. 40% of Chicago public school students will attend some form of college. For big shoulder schools, it's 85%. And they finish too. African-American alumni from these Catholic schools graduate college at a rate more than twice the national average, and Hispanic alumni graduate at a rate three times the national average. Private individuals giving over $250 million to big shoulders have made this a reality whereas Chicago public schools spend $100 million just on security each and every year. We have no, no security to speak of in these schools. And most of these schools, and you go there and you have the, the principal, is outside of the school when the kids arrive in the morning and she's there, generally she, not always, but more often than not, She's there at the end of the day as the kids are leaving. So there's always this presence of concern and care and stewardship. It just makes a major difference in how kids react and respond and, and perform. To me, that's one of the great values that these schools bring, that you don't see so often in, in the public schools. Jim's concern for the least among us has rubbed off on his kids. Fred, Jim Jr., and Elizabeth. When she came out of Georgetown, she uh, went right to school at St. Benedict the African and taught for a year. And that was, you know, our hearts were in our mouths each night because it was really a tough area in Englewood. And, uh, and she lived out there. And it was, uh, that was tough when you knew that she'd be working oftentimes nine o'clock at night on her parent-teacher conferences and 
you know, then she'd have to go home and go out in the car and then go from there. And you'd, you know, if the last call of night we were looking for was from her, I'm, I'm home okay. <laughs> I, I wanted I just wanted to know. I wanted to be very brave about it, but the fact is, these are tough neighborhoods. And she, she was there. Our son Jimmy finished college and he went off to Africa to teach in a very remote area where he was uh, pretty much by himself in helping the missionaries with their programs. And then our oldest boy has been very involved in, in a whole host of things involving uh, police benevolent association, the Hunter Club of Chicago, and then Big Shoulders. So I think it's great, and they, they all love it, and they all think that's, it's, it's important that they do it. And great job on that, Alex, as always. And what an American dreamer story. Coming here with nothing, his family from Ireland, bringing up three beautiful kids, giving back to the community. Of course, that big company job, that was a big deal to him. But in the end, what was it all for? To give back, to serve. And my goodness, so often the faith element right there in the middle of our best stories. Jim O'Connor's story, here on Our American Stories. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. Our American Stories, and we love telling stories about our men and women in uniform on this show, and we don't wait for Memorial Day and Veterans Day to do it. We do it all year round because the men deserve it, and we talk about men present and men and women past who served, some who've paid the ultimate price. And for this one, we turn to General John Kelly. He spoke to a group of families who'd lost sons and daughters in service of our nation. This was back in 2014. He was then a four-star general. He offered them a glimpse into the on-duty lives of their loved ones. He told the story of the last six seconds of two combat Marines killed in action under his command. Two men who are absolutely extraordinary and absolutely what the Marine Corps expects from each and every member. On the 22nd of April, 2008, two Marine battalions, the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, the walking dead from Vietnam fame, and the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, were switching out in a place called Ramadi, Iraq. One battalion was going home in a few days, and the other just starting its seven-month tour. Two Marines, Corporal Jonathan Yale and Lance Corporal Jordan Herter, 22 and 20 years old, respectively, one from each battalion. They were assuming the watch together at the entrance gate to an outpost that contained a makeshift barracks housing 50 Marines. 
The same broken down ramshackle building was also home to 100 Iraqi police who were our allies. They were my men in this fight against the terrorists in Ramadi. Yale was a dirt poor mixed race kid from Virginia with a wife and a daughter and a mother and a sister who lived with him and he supported them as well on $13,000 a year. Herder was a middle class white kid from Long Island. The two of them were from two completely different worlds in our country. Not good, not bad, just different. Had they not joined the Marine Corps, they would never have known each other. They would never have even understood that multiple Americas exist simultaneously, depending on your education level, your family's income status maybe. But they were Marines, they were combat Marines, and because of this bond, they were brothers as close as if they were born to the same woman. The mission orders they received from the sergeant, their squad leader, I'm sure, went something like this. Okay, you two clowns, stand this post and let no unauthorized personnel or vehicles pass. You clear on that? And I'm sure Yale and Herder then rolled their eyes and said in unison something like, yes, yeah, sergeant, we got it. We know what we're doing. Screw you. <laughs> Again, I'm prior enlisted. I know how they think. <laughs> they then relieved two other Marines on watch, who, as it turned out, were probably the two luckiest Marines on the earth that day. And they assumed those posts, Yale and Herder. A few minutes later, a very large blue truck turned down the alleyway that was no more than 100 yards in length. It sped its way through the serpentine concrete walls, Jersey walls. The truck then stopped just short of where these two were posted. It detonated. It killed both of them catastrophically. And if you know what combat's like, you know what I'm talking about when I say catastrophically. 24 brick masonry houses were damaged or destroyed by the blast. A mosque 100 meters away collapsed. The truck's engine came to rest 200 meters away, and it knocked down a building before it came to rest. Their explosive guys reckoned that the blast was made by a bomb of at least 2,000 pounds of explosive. Two died, and because these two young infantrymen died, they didn't know how to run from danger. 150 men, 50 U.S. Marines and 100 Iraqis were saved. When I read the situation report, a few hours after it happened, I called the regimental commander, Luke Craparata, and I asked him for details about what happened. It seemed different to me. Unfortunately, Marines dying or being seriously wounded is common in combat. We expect Marines, and for that matter, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Coast Guardsmen, regardless of rank, to do their duty, to stand their ground, and to die, if that's what the mission requires. The regimental commander had just returned from the site. He agreed with me, for it reported to me that there were no American witnesses, just Iraqi police. I figured if there was any chance of finding out what actually happened and to recognize these young men for what they'd done, I'd have to go down there myself, because I understood, unfortunately, that the bureaucrats in Washington would never accept Iraqi statements for what had taken place. If there was any chance at all, it had to come under my signature. So I traveled to Ramadi the next day and spoke to half a dozen Iraqi police, all of whom told me the same story. 
They said the truck turned down into the alley and sped up as it made its way through the serpentine Jersey walls. They all said they knew immediately what was going on, particularly when the Marines began to fire. The Iraqis all began firing as well, then to a man ran for safety just prior to the explosion. They all survived. Many were injured, some seriously injured. But as one of the Iraqis said to me, sir, they'd run from the danger like any normal man would to save his life. What he didn't know until then, he said, and what he learned at that instant, was that Americans are not normal. <laughs> With tears welling up, he said to me, sir, in the name of Allah, no sane man would have stood there and done what they did. No sane man. They saved all of us. <laughs> what we didn't know at the time, what I didn't know at the time, and only learned a couple of days later, after I wrote a summary of statement of, these, of this bravery and submitted both Yale and Herder for Navy Crosses, which is the number two award for Marines and sailors in combat. What I didn't know was that one of the security cameras we had at the location that was damaged initially in the blast had caught everything. It happened exactly as these Iraqis described it to me. It took exactly six seconds by that recording from the truck entered the valley until it exploded, six seconds. And you can watch, and I did watch many, many times on this recording, the last six seconds of their lives. When it first started, I suppose it took about a second or so for the Marines to separately come to the conclusion about what was going on. They had no time to talk it over, only enough time to take half an instant and think about what the sergeant maybe had told them a few minutes before, let no unauthorized persons or vehicles to pass. At that point, I think, according to the recording, the Marines had about five seconds to live. Think of it, five seconds to live. I don't think they knew it. They didn't have time. Took about another two seconds for the two jarheads to raise their weapons, to take aim, and to open up at that truck. By this time, the truck was halfway through the barriers and gaining speed the whole time. Here, the recording shows a number of Iraqi policemen, some of whom had fired their AK-47s, were now scattering like the normal and rational men they were, some running right past the Marines. The two Marines had about three seconds to live. For about two seconds more, the recording shows the Marines firing their weapons nonstop. The truck's windshield exploded into shards of glass as their rounds took it apart and undoubtedly tore into the body of the terrorist that was trying to kill their brothers. Unaware of the danger at the time, the Marines and Iraqi soldiers could take comfort in the fact if they'd have known that two Marines were on watch and would die before they ran. The truck careens to a stop immediately in front of the two Marines. In all of this instantaneous violence, Yale and Herder never hesitated. They never stepped back. They never even started 
step back. They never shifted their weight. With their feet spread shoulder width apart, they leaned into the fire and fired as fast as they could. They had only, at this point, one second to live. And then the truck explodes, the camera goes blank, and the two young men go to their God. Six seconds. Not enough time to think about their country or their flag or about their lives or their deaths, but more than enough time for two very brave young men like your sons and daughters, like your brothers and sisters, like your spouses, two very brave young men to do their duty for eternity. That is the kind of people who are on watch for us all over the world tonight. That is the kind of young men and women that came from your families. And for those of you tonight and all of the families that have lost the light of their lives, they can say to every American that it was my boy or it was my girl who stood their post and did their duty <clears throat> into eternity. Corporal Jonathan Yale's story, Lance Corporal Jordan Herders, and that's General John Kelly. Their last six seconds revealed everything about their character and the Marine Corps.